0: Today's conversation reaffirmed the connection between politics and our humanity, as well as the presence of grace and leadership among New Deal leaders. I talk with Delaware State Senator Sarah McBride. She's many things, an advocate, a first-term legislator with an ambitious agenda, a friend of the president, and the highest-ranking transgender elected official in U.S. history. Sarah has married the personal and the political since she came out as a transgender woman while serving as student body president at American University. Since then, she's worked for the Center for American Progress, taught at the Biden Institute, wrote a beautiful book called Tomorrow Will Be Different, and was elected to the Delaware Senate in 2020. Going to the interview, I knew Sarah was remarkable, but she exceeded all my expectations. Enjoy. Senator Sarah McBride, welcome to an honorable profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today.
1: It's great to be on. Thanks so much for having me.
0: There is so much for us to talk about, uh, about your life and leadership and policy issues. But first, I think I'd like to start in the state you represent, Delaware. This is a state that's obviously had a major role in your life, but now it has a major role in all of our lives, uh, as it's the state where the president's from. Can you describe a little bit the role that you think Delaware plays in the country and the political culture it has and why you think it's playing such a, a large role in our, in our nation, uh, even as a small state?
1: Sure. It, it's a great question. And we like to say right now that we're at the center of the political universe with everything that's going on and with, with Joe Biden in the White House. You know, the first thing I'd say about Delaware, I'd say this to anyone who is is just curious about the state, but I think it's also really relevant for our politics is that we're a state of neighbors. We're a small state under a million people and everyone's really one or two degrees of separation from from one another. And that, of course, that that small state mentality um, really informs our politics. It informs uh, our relationships and how we engage with one another. I, I think that to a large degree, our General Assembly has not yet seen the same kind of toxicity and 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 lack of of you know cross party collaboration and and even relationships. We haven't seen the the diminishment of that like we've seen nationally and and even in our state legislatures, and I think that's in large part driven by our small size i I think Joe Biden brings that mentality, that approach to his work he often talk, times talks about you know how things are done in Delaware sometimes that smallness can um, mean that we have an aversion to you know really challenging the way things have always been done but i think more frequently and increasingly what it actually does is it helps to one ensure that even one can play a role in making change in your community and two that it breaks down the abstractions of policy and makes the debates that you're having at the local state and even federal level, that much more real because you know, the people who are impacted by policies, you know, the people who are going to, who are struggling with their, uh, with making ends meet, the people who are struggling through the pandemic, the people who are struggling through an illness, the people who are struggling to afford childcare. And so when you know the people who are impacted by the policies, like we do in a small state like Delaware, I think it, 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 it helps to inform the policies that you prioritize. And I think that's one of the reasons why you're seeing President Biden, in a really bold way, prioritize policies that are impacting families in places like Delaware and across the country.
0: And how intentional do you need to be to sort of prevent some of the the divisions that we're seeing nationally from coming to your state? Your chamber, in which you serve is a very small chamber in a small state. um How do you build and maintain those relationships across party lines uh, across age across uh, sexual identity like how do you how do how do you how do you approach that
1: well you know i it, it's an interesting question because it's one that I grappled with as as both a new legislator but also a new legislator who has an identity that is new to, to, to some of my colleagues and for whom some of my colleagues might frankly have positions that, 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 that reject the validity of my identity. And so it's an interesting question to navigate as a legislator, but also as a legislator that comes from a marginalized background. And when I went into the Delaware legislature, I sort of made the decision. I'm not going to, I'm not going to act any different than any of my other colleagues. I'm not going to go in and, and presume that any of my colleagues are 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 going to treat me with disrespect i'm going to go in and expect the same kind of respect that my colleagues get and and to quite frankly assume best intentions and i think that that's paid off i think that the relationships that i've been able to develop with all of my colleagues including colleagues on the other side i think in part is a byproduct of the fact that i've gone in with assuming i've gone in assuming best intentions and they want to rise to that. And I think they're good people who want to, who want to treat people with kindness. And so I think that, that that's helped to facilitate a dynamic where I've been able to, to, to develop and foster relationships, both personally, but also professionally with colleagues in both chambers and both sides of, of the aisle. And that also, I think, you know, 80% of our votes aren't part, you know, don't fall on party lines. Most of our votes are overwhelming majorities or even unanimous. And there are bills that, that we're able to work on across across the political divide, because you see, I think, our media focuses on the 20% of issues where we fundamentally disagree. But at the end of the day, I think on most issues, we share common goals. And on most issues, we're able to find, frankly, common sense solutions to move forward. And so while there are big important things that are party line votes and we should be absolutely doing those things and we shouldn't shy away shy away from them simply because they're hard or controversial you see how much we have in common when you're actually working there because you see that most of the votes that we take don't fall on party lines and that many of the bills that we consider have bipartisan sponsorship and you know i've been able to work with my Republican colleagues on on issues ranging from healthcare to to criminal justice reform to to education. And and that's been really, I think, wonderful to see at a time where it's easy to forget how much we have in common when you just watch the news.
0: That's, I couldn't agree more. And when I look at your, the bills that you carried in the last session, for a first-term legislator, uh, you were moving some very big bills around telehealth, uh, paid medical uh, family leave. Can you talk about some of your efforts and how, as a as a first-term legislator, you took such a leadership role in trying to move these pretty big uh, agendas forward?
1: Yeah, and, 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 and the two bills that you mentioned, I, I'm particularly excited about because I think both of them actually go directly to the heart of... The pandemic and our recovery and and reimagination post pandemic of of our world, um, where we learn the lessons of the last year and a half, and as the president says, build back better. As you mentioned, we're a small state senate, so each of us, even new members, have a, a unique opportunity to to play play a meaningful role in, in in big bills. And as the chair of the Senate Health Committee, I've been able to play a uh, play a meaningful role. In some very serious legislation, even in my first year, which has been a, a real privilege and a real honor uh, to be able to to be able to get my hands dirty and and really roll up my sleeves, because at the end of the day, I'm a, I'm a policy wonk, and there is nothing that I love more than sort of the beauty of good policy coming together, sometimes complicated policy coming together, to just create a, a solution that that you know any individual part might not make sense, but when it comes together, it really just, it, it creates that beautiful tapestry of policy. And both of those bills you mentioned, the telehealth expansion in Delaware and paid family and medical leave, I think are reflections of that kind of policymaking, but also, again, two policies that go directly to the heart of, of our recovery from COVID. The telehealth legislation is legislation that builds on our progress in Delaware that we've made around telehealth over the last six years or so. We have passed a number of bills expanding, you know, parity when it comes to telehealth, expanding allowances for telehealth. But when COVID hit, the gov- the, the governor first threw an executive order, and then the legislature temporarily through legislation expanded the parameters of telehealth in our state to include, for instance, the allowance for audio-only uh, telehealth for folks who live in rural communities, and to also allow for for telehealth to occur even without a, a physical inpatient provider relationship being established. And what we saw from that is that those allowances worked. They expanded access, they removed barriers, and they didn't diminish quality. And so working with uh, Representative David Bentz, the house chair of, of their health committee, we put together legislation that didn't take everything from the expansion during COVID, but the parts that we saw worked really clearly including the allowance as a backup for audio only telehealth and the ability of a telehealth relationship or a relationship between patient and provider to be established even without a, an initial physical interaction and alongside that we were able to also enter Delaware into an interstate compact that allowed that allows for and facilitates interstate telehealth services something that's critical for both patients and providers alike especially in a small state like Delaware where providers very easily can be across state lines and patients very easily can be across state lines. And so the the telehealth expansion that we did essentially expanded in those two major areas, our telehealth in Delaware, and entered us into that interstate compact. And that's going to remove barriers for patients with disabilities, for families living in rural communities, for working parents, for working people, for so many Delawareans who need access to care but who are facing both physical and economic barriers to getting it. And then, as you mentioned, paid family and medical leave. I think one of the things we've seen during the course of this pandemic is that no one should have to give up their income of illness. And whether it's COVID or cancer, whether it's a global public health crisis or an individual health crisis, the same principle applies. And that's why during COVID, we expanded our unemployment insurance to essentially become a COVID-related paid leave program. But now it's time to to implement that more broadly for the full range of major life events that people face, whether it's an illness, whether it's caring for a loved one who's struggling with a serious health condition, or whether it's starting a family. And I think paid family and medical leave, in addition to being really at the heart of the COVID crisis and our recovery from it, is one of those policies that's a win-win-win. It's a win for public health, it's a win for workers, and it's a win for employers, You know, one of the things we are seeing right now is that paid family and medical leave is an increasingly expected benefit for particularly young working families. And they're going to look, they're going to look to whether the state has it, or they're going to look to whether their potential employer has it. And that's one of the reasons why more and more major corporations are providing this benefit on their own. But what it does is it puts smaller and medium-sized employers who struggle to afford this benefit on their own. It puts them at a competitive disadvantage in that, in that quest for talent with those larger corporations. Similarly, it puts Delaware at a competitive disadvantage with states like New Jersey that already have these policies when we're trying to attract talent to our state. And so I, I think paid family and medical leave through a, a state-administered insurance program really is the most economical way to deliver the benefit, but it does so in a way that levels the playing field between small and medium-sized businesses and larger employers. Right now, it's looking like there's a decent chance that the reconciliation package might include paid family and medical leave. That's fantastic. Hopefully that happens. If it does, we're going to look to see what holes are are left because of it going through reconciliation to see if at a state level we can address it. Or if they don't act on it, then we'll be ready to implement that Biden agenda here in Delaware.
0: Can you talk a little bit, it's interesting how the safety net has become, you know, in a... Necessary and a way to attract or retain a workforce, a community, in addition to the health uh, and societal benefits. Can you talk a little bit? And you know, it's all a little uncertain these days uh, as we emerge from COVID. How you think COVID will have impacted your state, your community, the way you do policy, and will it? Will it, do you see lasting change?
1: Yeah, well, first off, I think one of the one of the reasons why we're seeing that phenomenon where the the social safety net is increasingly becoming a a central part in winning that competition for talent is because of how mobile our workforce has become. Um how mobile the workforce has become domestically, but also how how mobile increasingly people are globally. And frankly, when businesses are looking and they know that they're gonna have lower healthcare costs, they know that, that they, they're gonna to need to provide this benefit to their employees, but this state or even this country is gonna offer it at a much more affordable price, that's appealing for those businesses, both from a budget stability standpoint, but also from that 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 competition for talent standpoint. And I think in order to 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 recognize one, the 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 mobility that is the reality physically for workers, but also then the professional mobility of people, you know, jumping from job to job to job. Um, that that a social safety net is increasingly necessary uh, to reduce costs, but also to reflect that that reality. And I think COVID has reinforced that. I think COVID has reinforced that in order to have a thriving economy, we've got to take care of public health. And public health isn't just about you know your ability to go see a doctor it's also about your ability to to get care that you need without having to sacrifice your income it's about making sure that people have the ability to get stable affordable housing and there are market solutions to a number of those issues but there's also uh, there's also solutions that that require government to play a role because at the end of the day government is incredibly effective when pooling resources And so I I think that the lesson from COVID is that these policies are really necessary for a thriving economy, for a a thriving, growing workforce, and that public health is the foundation upon which all that is is created and that these policies are are central to public health. So my hope is moving forward that we don't just learn the immediate lessons of COVID. We don't just take this moment to, to pass what I think are common sense policies that Pretty much every other industrialized nation and a growing number of states are adopting, but also that our perspective shifts moving forward. That, you know, after major crises, major events in the United States, in any country, it, you often have a new perspective that you view politics through. After 9 11, for better or for worse, it was that national security perspective. And that lasted for several years after you know, after uh, after 2001, 2004 election, right? The, the battleground was those soccer moms in, in Ohio where they were viewing policies through this national security lens and framework. My hope is that in the years to come, even as COVID dissipates from our memory, that, that we continue to view the world and our policies and our politics through this public health lens.
0: So I, I have to ask because your answer is so uh thorough and uh informed one might assume that you've been doing this for many decades but you're only 30 years old (laughs) so how how did you get interested in politics and public service what brought you into this that, that you've been you've been working at such a high level for for so long what what sparked that interest
1: you know, I think in many ways, my interest in, in, in government and advocacy and politics stemmed from my own journey to coming out as a transgender person. I, When I was young, I, I wasn't interested in politics. I was actually really interested in architecture. But what, what I was thinking about and what I was really aware of is how the world is it is how the world interacts with people and 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 the barriers that it places in front of people because as a, at a young age, I was becoming aware of who I am and in the same instant becoming aware of the fact that there was significant prejudice and 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 ignorance around people like me. And I saw that the world was not structured for me to not just live authentically and openly, but for, frankly, if I were to do so, for me to live a a, a meaningful, successful life. And so I, I at a very early age, was really trying to process the world and how it interacted with not just me, but others. And I was really interested in architecture at the time. I wanted to be an architect, and I used to read about all the different buildings around the world, and I stumbled across books about the White House and the Capitol. And what I marveled at wasn't, the buildings wasn't the beauty of those buildings, but was the history that occurred within their walls. And I think as a young person wondering whether the heart of my country was big enough to love someone like me, whether my democracy had space for someone like me, um, what I saw in reading about that history was that the story of every generation was the story of advocates, activists, and a handful of elected officials working together to expand that circle of opportunity to to to, to deepen our understanding of our humanity, to bring in people from the shadows and in the margins, that politics seemed like the place where you could make the most amount of change for the most number of people in the most number of ways possible. And so I think to me at at a young age, politics felt like the place where I could maybe build a world where more people could live openly and authentically. I found hope in that, that things could change. And then I got involved in politics here in Delaware. And and as I said at the start, we're a small state. And, you know, a 14-, 15-, 16-year-old kid can can get to know their elected officials. And I got to know my elected officials. I got to know because I showed up volunteering as a 14-year-old. I got to know people like Jack Markell when he was still state treasurer before he was our governor. I got to know Chris Coons when even before he was uh, uh, the county executive, which he was before the US Senate. He was count he was he was running for county council president. You know, I got to know these elected officials, Bo Biden. I got to know them and 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 they got to know me. And I saw that I could make a difference. I saw that one voice could could change people's perspectives. And these elected officials took note in what I had to say. And so I got involved because I, I saw that politics was the place where you could do good. I found hope in that as a young person struggling with who I am and my place in this world. And I got involved and in a small state I, I saw that my voice could matter at a young age. So I'm incredibly grateful for that. But I think that that journey, that journey to authenticity is what is what sparked my interest in politics and government and advocacy and got me involved.
0: And for our listeners who come from marginalized backgrounds and maybe just starting to think about getting involved in politics, has the has the system reciprocated the effort that you put in what what's your advice to people who are just starting out on that journey and and are worried about you know the personal toll that will come along with a political toll as they as they enter into the arena
1: yeah you know change making is hard work it it, it really is hard work it's not for the faint of heart and there are going to be plenty of instances where You're gonna feel like you you're making false starts. That that you're gonna wonder whether it's false hope. There're gonna be moments where you have a crisis of faith. I've certainly had that. But one of the things I think I've 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 learned is that hope isn't necessarily an organic phenomenon. I think sometimes we think that 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 hope just happens. And if it doesn't just happen, if you don't just feel it, then there's nothing that you can do about it. Sometimes hope has to be conscious. And if you do the work for long enough, you will find those moments of hope, those moments of progress that you can latch on to. That in, it, when things get tough, when, when sometimes everything feels broken and impossibly broken, you can remind yourself and give yourself that, that motivation, that energy, that reason for hope. I've certainly learned that. And so one piece of advice I always have for folks is to, to, to take those moments of hope, take those moments of progress and, and file them away in your mind and try to summon them when things get tough, when the, when, when the odds seem uh, against you. And to remember that throughout history, it's always been in our biggest challenges that we take our most significant steps forward. It's in crisis that that, that innovation is required and fostered. It, it, it's in those moments of, of, of tragedy that we end up not only triumphing over the, the, the challenge, but oftentimes making progress that prior to seemed so impossible that it was almost incomprehensible. And and so that that's important. But I, I will say that for all of the challenges in our politics right now, I'm as hopeful as I've ever been. In fact, I'm probably more hopeful than I've ever been because of the change that I witnessed in the 10 years before I ran for office. I ran for office because I was, at the end of the day, hopeful that we can do big things, that we can make change, because I'd seen it and I'd lived it. I'd fought for it and I'd, I'd experienced it as an advocate. And, and so I remain hopeful, but even in moments where I I question whether that's naive, I think back to those, those instances of progress, those moments of hope that I've experienced throughout my career, whether it's passing legislation that people literally laughed us out of the room when we first brought it to them, when it, whether it, whether it's, you know, beating back anti-LGBTQ bills that seemed inevitable, whether it's the hearts and minds that have been opened, whether it's the young LGBTQ people who exist today and their existence personifies our progress, no matter what it is, there are so many reasons for, for hope and for optimism that I, I I I try to summon that when I'm feeling discouraged or or down. You know, one of the things I think about when we're talking about these these conversations around sort of the cynicism that develops is is actually Barack Obama's Convention speech this this last um, this last convention. A lot of people called it dark, but I thought it was actually eminently hopeful because the 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 sort of main line of it was that if you look back at every point in American history, whether it was slaves singing freedom songs around a fire, whether it was workers in the depths of the Great Depression standing in bread lines and, and 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 soup lines, whether it was John Lewis marching across the bridge in Selma getting bleaten, beaten and bloodied at the hands of law enforcement. Every single point in American history, there have been people who have had every reason to give up, every reason to think that the chan- chances of change were impossible, that, that that there was no path forward, and that our system was just so fundamentally broken that it was beyond repair. And if anyone had a reason to give up, it was those Americans. But they didn't. And they saw it through, and they might not have always seen the light at the end of the tunnel in the moments of greatest challenge, but in keeping moving forward, they eventually reached that, 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 that light at the end of the tunnel. They eventually brought about that change that seemed impossible. And that's, that's I think, the lesson, is that hope breeds perseverance, and perseverance will inevitably lead to progress, even if you can't see it in real time.
0: That's beautifully said. And I wanted to ask you about sort of that. Hope personified in that you were uh just invited to the White House for Pride Month. Can you talk about what that experience was like after the previous four years and and what you know and especially with your connection to the president and his family
1: yeah it, it, it's funny bringing that up. I was literally just having coffee with a six year old trans girl and her her family. And I was saying to her, she said, I, I heard you were just, she's just been in DC. She said, I heard you were just at the White House. I said, Yeah. It was my first time there in a while because the previous guy wasn't really friendly. Um, and it was really special being being there, being back there, um, being there among LGBTQ people. You know, I had had the chance as an mm-hmm. advocate to, and, and uh, before that as an intern in, in the Obama White House to, 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 Participate in meetings and 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 be there during the Obama administration, but this was the first time, and it, it was such a, a breath of fresh air. Um, it was a, a reminder of the weight that had been lifted off of our shoulders. I mean, every single day, there was always that feel of you know a tweet dropping or a policy being announced by the Trump administration that was going to go after my community that was going to go at the heart of my personhood and my dignity and the dignity of other people in this country and to be reminded that we now have a leader who sees that the presidency is is a, is a is a responsibility to appeal to our nation's better angels to uphold the dignity of every person that event that white house pride pride event welcoming lgbtq people in that building People who, you know, wouldn't have been welcomed, trans folks who wouldn't have been welcomed in that building just six months before um, was uh, was certainly a reminder of how things have have changed even in just six months. The weight off of so many of our shoulders with the Trump administration leaving and, you know, with so many anti-LGBTQ attacks at the state level and in in places across the country, that peace of mind uh, in knowing that our federal government has our back. That that the president sees us, and that his Department of Justice, his Department of Education, his Department of Health and, and Human Services will put the full force of the federal government behind upholding the rights and dignity of of people like me, um, is deeply comforting. And, you know, you mentioned uh, my relationship with the president, everyone in Delaware knows one another. uh, And, and, and so, you know, we're used to seeing Joe and Joe Biden at the grocery store, you know, in a parade, walking down the street at a restaurant that that's normal for us. And, and what, what I will say is that you really get to know your, your politicians And Delaware has, has the ability to sort of break through in authenticity because you get to know people one-on-one and, the Joe Biden that people see is is the Joe Biden that we know and his passion for I always say for LGBTQ quality is the real deal, because I've seen the passion in his eyes and, and heard the passion in his voice when he talks about it one on one with me. And so we're really lucky to to have someone in the White House whose whose big heart really is as big, if not bigger than than what people say and what you see on TV. He's the real deal and, and we know it because we see it in person every 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 now weekend in Delaware, but before that every day in Delaware.
0: That was my that was my question is from from somebody who is who has known the president in that capacity, you know, what what do all of us need to know about Joe Biden that, that we that we think we know and we're wrong about or that, that we just don't know?
1: So I I, I think one of the things I talked about during the campaign that I that I don't think people fully realize is, you know, one of the trite cliches that people say about politicians or the politicians in their campaigns say about them is that, you know, this leader will fight for you like they fight for their own family. And it's usually a throwaway line. But for Joe Biden, it is so real and so true. And I think so much of that stems from his experience and tragedy. And when, when, when Joe Biden lost his wife and his youngest daughter in that tragic car accident, right after getting elected to the United States Senate in 72, um, almost losing Beau and Hunter at that time, it was not just his own blood family. It was community that helped him get through it. I mean, Delaware politics is filled with people who, you know, babysat for, for, Beau, for, for Bowie and, and Hunter and. When the newly elected senator was taking the train down after his wife passed away, I mean the community helped to raise the kids. They helped to get Joe Biden through that. They 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 kept his his spirits alive. And then when he lost Bo, the community really mourned with him in a, in, a, in a deeply personal and profound way. And so I think for Joe Biden, when 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 that trite line about a politician fighting for your family like they fight for your own is said, it's actually true for him because for Joe Biden, community is family in a way that only tragedy and the experiences he's had in his life can forge. And and so I think that's that's something that I, I think people don't fully understand about him, just how much community is family, just how much he cares about other people like he cares for his own family, because he would have never gotten through his tragedy in his life had the community not treated his family like
0: their own. That's beautiful. I I wanted to ask you about the tragedy that you've had to deal with. You wrote about it beautifully in your book, Tomorrow Will Be Different, about the passing of your husband. And I want to talk a little bit about, I mean, you've lived your life where your activism and your personal life have been very much public from the time you were a student president at uh, American and coming out. Uh, and getting national attention for that uh, to the book to your current run for office, how do you balance the the personal and the political? And I, I sort of hadn't made the connection of the some of the experiences that you've you've had that you share with the president in this regard. But can you talk a little bit about how you manage, you know, that those parts of your life that inform your politics, but also are deeply personal and and challenging in and of their own right, not especially when you're if, if you have to do it in front of the country or your community.
1: Yeah, it, it's a it's a great question, and 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 for those who for those who don't who who aren't sort of aware of of the backstory, the greatest privilege and blessing of my life was falling in love with and having the opportunity to marry Andrew Cray, who was a, an amazing advocate attorney fighting for healthcare access for marginalized, uh, communities. He, uh, during our relationship was diagnosed with cancer. Um, we were both fortunate to have uh, jobs that allowed us to to take paid leave. Uh, he was lucky to have health insurance that covered the the full range of really urgent life, potentially life-saving care that he needed. He was able to get that treatment. He was able to get that treatment without having to worry about his, you know, being able to afford to to pay rent. Um, I was able to take time off to service his caregiver, which was a full-time job. And I was able to do that without having to sacrifice my income. Ultimately though, his cancer was incredibly aggressive. And after getting a clean bill of health, it it returned and spread to his lungs and ultimately was terminal. And we we were able to get married just a couple of days before he passed away and paid leave actually also allowed for me to, to be bear, be there by his side, to, to, to walk him to his passing, to, to marry him, uh, and to, 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 frankly do what was important in those, in those final days to be by his side and, and love him as much as I could. He passed away in, in, in 2014. And I, I think about every, Andy every single day. I, I am profoundly changed by his love and by my experiences with him. And, and I think your question is, is great because I think that both parts of it really tie in with one another. You know, I, I, share, I share myself, I share my personal experiences publicly for a couple of reasons. One, it's actually healing for me. Um, it, it's healing for me to talk about it. It's healing for me to, to introduce people to Andy. It's healing for me to be able to feel like I'm keeping him with me and keeping him contributing to the change that we both care so deeply about by, by talking about my experiences, by utilizing our, our relationship to, to try to bring about change, whether that's in LGBTQ equality, healthcare, paid leave. But what I think it, 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 it also left me feeling is just two things. One um, I've seen throughout my life, both as a trans person, but also as a caregiver, as a young widow, that the political is personal. Right? But these aren't abstract issues. Going back to what I said at, at the start about Delaware. You know, when, when, when you live in a small state and you get to know people across our diversity, when, when you live these issues in your own life, you see what the stakes are. You feel a sense of urgency. You recognize how policy can positively or negatively impact people in their daily lives and how as elected officials we can't stop all loss or eliminate all pain but what we can do is we can make life a little bit easier for people when hard times hit um and and i know in my own life how lucky i was for all the challenges i was lucky because i had layers of support that allowed me to keep my head above water and if you had removed any one of those layers of support during any of these challenges, whether it was coming out or whether it was Andy's cancer, I certainly wouldn't have made it through. Andy probably would have passed away earlier. We would have never been able to, to, to get married. And I think about so many people that don't have those layers of support. And if I was just barely able to get through those times, how are people able to get through their, their challenges? And so I think it, it, it reinforced the political is personal, it reinforced the stakes and the urgency it reinforced how lucky I am, um, and it reinforced just how how fundamental these types of policies, common sense policies, common sense compassionate policies can be to allowing people to get through those hard times so that they can not just live but but ultimately thrive. But then the, the final thing I'll say, and it goes back to another question that you asked about hope, is a lesson that I took from Andy's passing. My brother, who's a, a radiation oncologist and has watched far too many people pass away from cancer he said to me in that final month of andy's life this is going to be incredibly difficult but i should take stock in the acts of amazing grace that would be everywhere and that grace those miracles were ever present and i think what it helped me see and what it, it, it that what it changed in my perspective is it, it is it showed me that all of us bear witness to acts of amazing grace, even in the most trying times that hope as an emotion only makes sense in the face of hardship. And as Mr. Rogers liked to say that when you would see something scary on the news, his mom would tell him to look for the helpers. But if you just look around, no matter how negative things seem, no matter how bad things are, no matter how many challenges we're facing, if you look around, you see those helpers, you see those acts of grace, you see those little miracles. And you're reminded of the goodness that exists in this world, even in tragedy. And that has left me, I think, ultimately, eternally and unyieldingly hopeful.
0: I just want to thank you. I, you know, we have a lot of conversations uh, with New Deal leaders who are all extraordinary people doing um, extraordinary things. I feel like your messages about hope and overcoming tragedy and finding the the good or the grace—I don't know. It, it feels like what at least I needed today, and I hope it's what our our listeners needed today. As we as we continue to face so much uncertainty and so much inequity in our community and in our country, I just want to thank you for um, your leadership. Thank you for being uh, for joining the New Deal. I think we all look forward to to seeing each other uh, in person soon, and and I certainly look forward to seeing uh, your leadership in Delaware, but in a way that radiates out, uh, to the rest of our country.
1: Well, thank you so much. It was incredibly kind to say it's, it's such an honor to be part of this organization and, and a cohort of just such exceptional leaders across the country, people who I've long been fans of. And I look forward to being able to see everyone in person, hopefully sooner rather than later.
0: Thank you, Sarah. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to an honorable profession please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable boots Row group produces podcast. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.